Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is episode 22 of The Josh Marshall Show. Today we are talking to Bhaskar Sankara, who is the editor, publisher, and founder of Jacobin Magazine. Now, if you're not familiar with Jacobin, it is uh, about half a dozen years old. It is a print publication that is also online, and it is a magazine of the left in a way that has really not existed as a semi-mass publication uh, thing in the United States in some time. It also has a clear generational tinge to it. Um, It's founded by very young people. It is not, you know, people my age are used to uh, socialist publications being published by people in their 50s and 60s and older. This is by young people. It It is a generationally distinct political movement, stance, so forth. It's it's not formally connected, but it's certainly uh, part of the same movement in American politics that you see in the rise of membership in the Democratic Socialists of America, in the Bernie Sanders campaign, and so on and so forth. So I wanted, I've wanted to talk to uh, Bosker for some time to kind of talk about Jacobin and talk about left politics, uh, left socialist politics in the United States, because he is a very key voice of that uh, of that political movement in the United States. So, without further ado, let's talk to Bhaskar Sinkara. Hi, Bhaskar. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for coming on. So tell- yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on. I never pass up any free publicity. <laughs> All right, well, this is free, right? Uh, yes, it's definitely. There's no hidden charges. No good. hidden charges. All right. Um, so, for our for our listeners and 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 readers, what is Jacobin Magazine, and why is there Jacobin Magazine? So Jacobin is a magazine that talks about politics, economics, culture, but does so from a socialist perspective. And, uh, you know, we try to be clear and accessible. We try to uh, speak not just to a small leftist ghetto, but to speak to a wider American public. So why is there Jackman? There's Jackman because there's no other large-ish, or in our case, (laughs) medium-sized magazines, articulate uh, socialist perspectives to to you know the broader public, even though um, you know socialist currents of thought are very important um, across even the rest of the advanced capitalist world. There's big parties of opposition, labor-based parties and whatnot, um, that that advocate some form or the other of, of democratic socialism or social democracy. But that's basically um, you know it's the tradition that hasn't been visible at all in many decades in the United States. So how would you know? Obviously, dissent. Historic. I mean, dissent still exists, but historically, is was founded by run founded and run by democratic socialists. Although, what what demo, you know, democratic socialist means a lot of different things. And obviously, at least from my perspective, a lot of of what dissent has done over the decades, you know, implementing democratic socialism in the United States has seemed a rather distant. You know, a, a, a distant issue if you're if you're a reader of dissent, and I also know it's a different, it's a very different kind of publication. But so there's publications like Dissent. There's uh, publications like The Nation, say, that many people would think of as oh, okay, well that's the you know that's the left. Capture for our readers 
why I see the difference, but how? What is the difference? What is what does Jackman bring that the nation is not doing? Different perspective, different political outlook. Yeah. So one of my main intellectual um, influences, actually, to go back to Dissent, was the founder of Dissent, Irving Howe, and one of the regular contributors to Dissent um, was Michael Harrington, who was a founder of Democratic Socialists of America. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of similarities in that tradition. I would say the differences were slightly more critical of U.S. foreign policy, and dissent kind of runs a gambit of positions on on that. And we're, in many ways, more orthodoxly Marxist, whereas mm-hmm. over the years, dissent moved into a kind of, you know, a mix of different intellectual influences, kind of a more left communitarianism and, and, yep. and whatnot. And, and, but, you know, I also think the difference is in a lot of form and style. You know, we're a lot younger. Uh, we speak to a different demographic, mm-hmm. and we aim to be kind of a, a larger, more mass publication. So right now, we have a total circulation around 43,000, 44,000. The sense circulation, I would imagine, is around uh, 10% of that. Um, and that's right. not uh, any fault to them. They're trying to create kind of a, a journal. We're trying to create a... A magazine, so there's all sorts of of difference in terms of accessibility or or whatnot. Right. Um, so what what is now, the for for if 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 your circulation is in the mid 40s, what's the time arc like? How you know how long has it taken you to get to there? Is it still moving up? Just give, you know, give us some dy- yeah. dynamics of that. So I mean, it's kind of a uh, uh, we started um, in print uh, when I was just an undergraduate in college in early 2011. And it took a very long time to get to 2,000 subscribers. Mm-hmm. It took the, all of the Occupy movement. It took right. some favorable press and whatnot. Uh, we got a big Times profile in January 2013. Uh, that really helped. But the main thing was the Bernie Sanders campaign took us from around, let's say, five, 6,000 subscribers to 15, mm-hmm. 20. Yep. Um, and then Donald Trump took us up to the <laughs> high 30s after right. that. So got it's it. been got pretty... It. Pretty rapid, but, you know, we had to be there to take advantage of the shift. But I would say that, you know, obviously a publication like The Nation has a much wider uh, circulation than us. I would say the difference is um, The Nation is kind of a liberal left publication. Yep. Where I'm very proud to publish it, The Nation, but it's more as a more left-wing voice, I'm allowed uh, into the venue. Yep. Um, yep. But it's run largely by liberal voices, whereas... We, as a socialist publication, do bring in certain liberals to write about issues we agree on. So we bring on plenty of self-described liberal um, advocates of Medicare for All, for instance, to break down some of the policy aspects of Medicare for All. Whatnot, right. right. So, so we, we also believe in kind of having this, this tent that, that is open to people from different perspectives, but we're the ones kind of staring the ship. I think it's kind of similar with the nation. Also, I would say that... In a certain way, I do aspire to be a step removed from politics. So in other words, um, we're a very political publication. I don't mean it that way, but but there's a lot of movements out there. And I think if you were to read uh, The Nation or some other publications, you might think that we were actually winning. <laughs> you might actually just like see lots of reportage of movements on the rise and, and things like that. Whereas I think um, in a way, even though we're a younger publication, even though we're more visual there's something more dour and pessimistic about some of our, our worldview, maybe. Right, right. Now, you said before that, you know, the way that in, obviously most 
Europe, Western European countries. Obviously, it's a little more complicated in in Eastern Europe. There are, in in most cases, the the party of of you know the left, the the party of the left as opposed to the right, is nominally a socialist party. In France, say uh, that was you know the British Labour Party was always a little you know betwixt in between about about what it was. Obviously, in the Blair era, it changed rather dramatically. But in, in, in most of these countries, what are called socialist parties have policy agendas that is a is a, a pretty thin version of socialism, let's say, uh, in, in a lot of ways not that different from what the Democratic Party is in the United States. Obviously, you have certain embedded things like you have, you know, universal health care programs, different labor laws, blah, 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 blah. What what I'm interested in is what is I certainly take it that that you know what the, what the what the French Socialist Party calls socialism is not what you call socialism. What do you call socialism? What in the broadest sense, how are you defining socialism when you identify as a, as a socialist publication? Right. So I would actually say I have a fairly orthodox Marxist view of of what I what I mean by by socialism. So in other words. A politics that represents the broad interests of workers, a politics that in its fundamentals says, you know, there's a reason why, why in Marx's day, you know, everyone in the socialist movement uh, identified as social democrats. That was the root of the word social democracy, which simply meant they wanted to extend democratic rights. First of all, they wanted to battle for political democratic rights because in a lot of these places it didn't exist. But where it did exist, they wanted to extend it into the social and economic realms as well. Um, so, in other words, it is a vision, at least a broad vision, of society without capitalists, a society run democratically by workers. So there might still be room for a market, especially um, when it comes to consumer goods or whatnot. But it is, it is kind of the, the classic vision of, of socialism. The question is how we get from here to there. Uh, you know, we believe in the struggle for reforms and for winning things in the here and now, not only uh, because it's the moral thing to do to live in a country that has provides you know, basic health care and education and, and housing, uh, decent housing for its citizens, uh, but also beyond that because we believe that these reforms actually embolden workers to ask for more. So I think there was a, a kind of a Leninist myth uh, pushed among some segments of the Western left in the um, 1960s and um, kind of before that the welfare state was kind of buying off uh, workers. And I don't think that was the case at all. I think it was quite the opposite. If you're in a condition of near full employment, you're much more likely to tell your boss to F off and, you know, you could get another uh, another job somewhere else or it might give you more flexibility and more freedom to actually try risky uh, collective bargaining techniques mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. redress. Whereas today, if you're a worker and you're in a tough situation, I would say that more often than not, it probably makes better rational sense for you to, you know, look towards uh, friendship networks, kinship networks, you know, um, family networks to get, to you know, for help rather than to the left or to the labor movement because, there isn't much of a left or a labor movement nowadays. Right. So that you know, so I think I think in other words, we have the the vision that's still quite um, uh, that's quite radical, but we know that politics can't just be about vision. You have to have one foot in your vision, 
one foot in the world as it is. And if you have two in either direction, then you'll either become kind of the embodiment of the society you're trying to change, or you'll just become so disconnected from it, you'll just live in your own kind of uh, sectarian subculture. Right, right. So just just to probe on this question a little more, what I certainly think of as as socialism as a meaningful word is, you know, the classic state ownership of the means of production. But what I how I interpret that is in a socialist economy, there would not be, you know, the big the big corporations, the people in modern terms, the people who provide telecommunications, who provide internet, who who uh, the banking sector, that these would not be independent corporations. You might have, you know, uh, uh, you know, Jacobin and TPM might be private companies because they're, you know, small. They're not, you know, they're not big corporations. But fundamentally, there would not be big independent corporations. They would either be, well, you tell me. That that's that's kind of what I'm trying to, and 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 yeah, the reason so, I so. and the reason I press this just because I, I, I well, you answer the question and I'll. <laughs> Well, I'll, 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 I'll put it yeah. this way: you know, yeah. state ownership in itself is not an end in itself. In that, you know, depending on how the state is structured, if the state is undemocratic, if the state is run by an unaccountable bureaucracy, um, or worse, like the kind of dictatorships in the Eastern Bloc, then state ownership of the economy would hardly be um, in advance. Right? right? It'd be. Right almost a, a form of um, a social contract in a way prevailed, I think, in a lot of East, East, you know, the Eastern Bloc where people were given certain rights, right? Nobody was really um, starving during the, the Brezhnev years, let's right, say, in, in right. Russia. But in return, they had to be politically quiescent. And right. uh, it's best there is politically quiescent. And others, the communist dictatorships would, would demand, you know, active displays of, of uh, modulation. Mm-hmm. But but to me, there was a similar con- social contract in Sweden. The only difference was the social contract was tied to, you know, complete freedoms and civil liberties and whatnot. So if, when I think of, uh, you know, a society that, that comes closer to, to my ideal, or at least a, a good society, I think of, of Sweden um, in the 1970s. Right. But I think the vision has to go beyond that, uh, partially because uh, a social democracy itself is almost like trying to get the best bargain possible in a game rigged against you. Mm-hmm. So eventually your bargain will be um, undermined. Um, so when you look at what really did in the welfare state or what really led to its reduction in Western Europe, it wasn't anything dramatic like you know Pinochet's coup in Chile or anything like right. that. It was just the ability of capital to withhold investment. Um, and I think if we need... Uh, to think about the way in which if we want a stable social democratic society or something like it, we would need to take control of capital's ability to control investment, which would mean socializing investment, which would mean, I think, something that goes beyond capitalism. Right. Now, um, as far as your actual question, sure, I, I do think the commanding heights of the economy, let's say the big telecommunication companies, the, um, let's say, things like rail, like all these kind of, like, most um, really key industries do need to be run by the state with democratic um, inputs. Um, I do think of the rest of society, I would imagine there'd be a huge fear for worker cooperatives, for kind of um, uh, businesses of that nature. But uh, as socialists, we are critical of, you know, wage labor. You know, that's that's still right. a major part of our, our criticism. So in other words, 
even a small business that employs 10 people would at the very least have to be regulated in kind of their their ability to um, to um, influence the actions of those employees and ideally those firms would be organized in kind of a cooperative uh, democratic way which would still mean a division of labor but there's a big difference between being able to elect your management and being able to dictate more of the terms of your work uh, than what we have uh, today. But to me, at least, um, I, I think there would have to be still a role for the the uh, market. I think um, t- the market isn't the root of a lot of uh, the problems in society. The, the root of the problems in society are, um, you know, the actual structure of the firms that are competing with their, uh, each other in the market. And I also don't think that, you know, say something like firm failure, um, uh, is necessarily a bad thing in a um, a different sort of economy. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, the problem in capitalism is, you know, me and you go to compete in the market, and if one of us fails, we could fail all the way to the bottom. I think there is a big difference between that and a society in which you fail, but you still have some of the basic necessities of life um, provided for your rights uh, taken out of the market, right. and then you're able to retrain, get up, and try again. But ultimately, I do think our, our final vision is a vision to the left of social, what social democracy is today. But, you know, these currents were alive and well, you know, even um, even in the 70s and 80s in places like Germany, France, Sweden, right. there were people looking to take social democracy and push it slightly to the left. And I think those are the traditions that are most relevant for us on the left in the U.S. today, as opposed to the more kind of uh, dramatic fire and brimstone, you know, um, insurrectory, you know, traditions. I mean, it's 100 years after the the Russian Revolution. I don't think much of those lessons apply to us today. Right, right. You're listening to the free public version of the Josh Marshall Show. To hear the entirety of this episode and every episode of the Josh Marshall Show, visit TalkingPointsMemo.com and subscribe to TPM Prime.